Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk, or in short, AIAC Talk. I'm Will Shorkey in Johannesburg, and with me is Sean Jacobs in New York. We are the co-presenters of this, which is Africa's a Country's weekly discussion and interview show. And this is episode 15. And behind the scenes is our wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel, working her magic, and she's based in Cape Town, South Africa. If you missed last week's show, we had our literary scholars, Bhakti Shringapur, Lily Saint, and Mukoma Wangugi to discuss African books, reading them, teaching them, and what would constitute the decolonizing of particularly literatures in English. You can watch clips from that episode on our YouTube channel, as well as the whole thing on our Patreon, along with episodes from our archive. So please subscribe to our Patreon so you can check out all of that. So we have a great... We have a great program for you today. Our first guest, um, uh, Africa's a Country contributing editors, uh, Wangui Kamari um, and Ben Fogel, uh, who will be chatting to us about the politics or the lack thereof anti-corruption. And then later we're gonna zero in on the particular case of uh, Tanzania, uh, who has an election coming up uh, on the 28th of October, which I think is in about a week or so. Yeah, yeah. it's a week and a day. Yeah. Um, and we're going to speak to Sabato Niamsenda and Elisa Greco. Um, uh, we also want to know about, we want to talk to them about the election and just in general about uh, political developments there. Um, but we'll, um, first, I think we should take a quick W for those who don't know, that's like Twitter language. I don't know what, is that how the kids talk these days? Um, I don't know. Quick W, proudly sponsored by the people of Bolivia. Yo, what a what a week! I think this is probably the best thing to have happened this year. And actually, um, before the show started, I was listening to to the famous anthem of the New Chilean song movement, "El Pueblo Unido Jamás Será Vencido," which means, for our views, the people united shall never be defeated. And that was the case in Bolivia. I mean, it's it's a, been a fantastic week. So, for those who who haven't been following, uh, Bolivia recently held an election. Um, yesterday and the results came in and uh, Luis Arce who was the former finance minister under President Evo Morales won by landslide I think the the unofficial number over there is 52 percent and the reason this is significant is that almost exactly a year ago Bolivia had an election Evo Morales who is the leader uh, the Movimiento Socialismo, which is the movement towards socialism, this massive grassroots movement in Bolivia, which comprises the working class, indigenous people's resistance, and basically the subaltern classes. Um, and Eva Morales, who was the leader of this movement from 2006 up until last year, won this election, um, not by an outright majority, by 47% only. And... To recap the events after which this election happened, there was a report released by the Organization of American States, and they claimed that the election was fraudulent. And shortly after that happened, a coup, as, as, is, as is often the case in South America. And Evo Morales was, was unceremoniously deposed as president of Bolivia, and an interim government installed and that was headed by a woman by the name of Janine Añez, who was the second vice president of the Senate. And so it's, it's a, a remarkable sort of demonstration of the resilience of the MAS, 
because it was able to withstand the sort of interference of empire and win this election and, and show to the whole world that democracy is being restored. This is what the people want and they're going to realize it. And I think, I mean, a lot has to be said about how Morales himself was such a, an integral person that brought about the success of this movement. In He's in exile right now, right? Um, I think so. I think so. Yeah, in, in, in Argentina. I think he's sitting in Argentina. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. And, and I mean, he's such an incredible leader right up there, I think, with some of the greats of, of Latin America, like Salvador Allende, Hugo Chavez, Rafael Correa, and Lula da Silva. And of course, his leadership is not without blemish. But I mean, that 14 period during which he led Bolivia, we saw remarkable economic growth, but economic growth through redistribution. The government sort of implementing programs which were fundamentally about redistributing wealth amongst the population. So nationalizing its gas and mineral reserves, implementing wide public spending programs in healthcare and education and making direct wealth transfers to the people. And of course, in his later years, his popularity and support started to slip, but a, a remarkable leader, but more importantly, a remarkable movement. And I think that the Bolivian case sort of demonstrates what can happen if you have this grassroots movement that, although it moves from protesting on the streets to being in power, is able to maintain that connection to popular forces on the ground and opening democratic politics such that those popular forces can participate in the highest levers of power. And this was particularly significant given that the group who benefited from this most was Bolivia's indigenous population who are 42% of the population, but who had hitherto been excluded from political life and participation. And Eva Morales was a leader who not only gave them recognition, but made them involved in the, in the running of the country. And I mean, another lesson I think to draw from, from, from Bolivia is what a successful left-wing populism could look like. Um, because I think that, you know, especially in the mid 2010s, the places we've looked at for what a left-wing populist surge could look like have right. usually been sort of uh, Europe and the North Atlantic. So whether it's the Corbyn moment in the United Kingdom or Podemos in Spain or Syriza in Greece, or the Bernie Sanders moment, that's where most of the international left have been looking to try and understand how do we emerge from the political defeat of the left after, after the 1990s and, and neoliberalism. But I think the place to really be looking at and learning from is, is Latin America. And I think that the victory that happened yesterday is a testament to that. And also it's, it's, it's heavily implicated also in like local politics, which is I think that I mean, as you said, uh, in, in, at some level, the Morales uh, regime or, or project wasn't perfect. So there was some dissatisfaction with that project, which was exploited by the right. Unfortunately, the right then also showed itself up to be like they always are, very corrupt, not interested, despite all the rhetoric. I mean, if you look in the US with Trump, for example, in actually the interest of people. And so the mass, I think, also may have learned something from this about accountability, um, and about you know being being responsive to to its to its followers, but as you rightly point out, they definitely built like a base. They built yeah. uh, they built like an ideological like coherence around it. Um, so this this is a great comeback um, if you believe, particularly in Africa. You think like yeah, if you're in Africa and you're thinking like, what's the way out of this kind of 
the politics of nationalism as a project? Is there anything beyond nationalism? Well, you can actually build successful projects. Just quickly before we're going to get to our guests. Um, also, there's one other place where we um, just quickly, and you don't have, you know, you can just quickly summarize it in Chile, right? They can give us our second W. We hope. This coming weekend. We hope so. I mean, so, I mean, something that's been happening this week is it's been one year since protests broke out in Chile uh, last year. If everyone recalls, there were these spontaneous protests, which initially happened because there was a, a fee hike to the subway fare, and then it exploded into this mass movement calling for, for wider social reforms. And one of the concessions that the Chilean government made was calling for a referendum on Chile's constitution, which is happening this week. And that referendum is going to be asking Chileans whether or not they want to rewrite the constitution. And at this stage, about 80% of Chileans, according to polls, approve that the constitution should be writ rewritten. And I mean, the reason that's significant is that Chile's constitution at the moment is the one that was drafted during Augusto Pinochet's military dictatorship in 1980. So famously, Salvador Allende came to power, did the same thing that Evo Morales and the MAS are doing now in Bolivia, and backed by the United States, was ousted in this coup, and Pinochet was installed, and Chile is famously viewed as being the birthplace of, of neoliberalism. And this constitution effectively safeguards that ideological project of trying to limit state spending and decreasing the scope for democratic politics. So this weekend, hopefully Chileans can, can, can maybe not transform everything about their society, right. but at least provide the basis through which those deep reforms and that structural transformation can begin, which is to throw out this constitution, which entrenches a neoliberal politics and hopefully rewrite it in a way that something better is possible. Yeah, just to just to end the section, I mean, I love how South America um, is always um, showing us uh, like what is possible, like that there are other ways of living, of being, of existing. And it reminds me of a great quote, which I'm going to read by the Colombian writer um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who, when he was a, when he was given the Nobel Prize in 1995 um, in Stockholm, he there counted like for I think I probably like the million times the notion that everything in Latin America or the world of the Caribbean can only be understood through European or North American lenses. We will leave out like how people in the North talk about places like Bolivia that it cannot be messy, that, you know and wanting that's one or other template. But he actually said, and I quote, um, around the 1940s, Giovanni Papini declared that Latin America had not provided anything to humanity, not even a saint, as if that was not good enough. He was wrong, of course, because we did have Santa Rosa de Lima, but he didn't, she's the black saint from Peru, but he didn't count her, maybe because she was a woman. His assertion illustrates precisely the idea, and we can, the idea that Europeans, and we can add Americans have always shared about us that all that is not done the way they do it is a mistake. And they make everything to correct it their way as the United States does. Simon Bolivar, desperate to hear advisors and impositions demanded one day, let us make our own Middle Ages. Can we do it our way for once? Anyway, well, let's get to our guests. Yeah, I mean that's that's such a such a powerful, powerful, powerful quote. And as we say in Swahili, Haposasa, which means that's right. Okay, um, welcome to today. <laughs> <laughs> we love bringing out the Swahili. <laughs> okay. 
Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing out all the languages. Um, inspired by last week's show, so I'm trying to avoid as much English as possible. Um, but you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or on our website, Africa's a Country. All our work is published under a Creative Commons license, so please feel free to repost it. And remember, if you have questions for our guests, please put them in the chat on Facebook, in YouTube, or in the thread of the live stream, but make them good, please. We, we want some good questions. Um, so on to our first guests. Um, corruption, as we all know, is, is the theme of tonight's show, and it's always in the spotlight. Just last week, Sierra Leone's Anti-Corruption Commission postponed a hearing by former President Ernest Coroma over findings into alleged corruption during his tenure after supporters of him gathered outside his residence to stop officials from questioning him. And right here in South Africa in recent weeks, anti-corruption protests led by the labor movement, which is significant, have been happening. So clearly corruption is a serious problem and no one's going to deny that. But the question we have for today is, is anti-corruption a serious politics? So joining us now are Wangui Kamari, who besides being a contributor to Africa as a country, is also a participatory action researcher for the Matare Social Justice Center in Nairobi, Kenya. And she's been on the show before to talk about Kenya's post-colonial history and contemporary politics. If you haven't seen that episode, head to our Patreon and make sure you do. And she's also helping coordinate the Capitalism in My City series on our website. And making his debut for this show is Ben Fogel, who is a PhD student in history at NYU. And although this is Ben's first time on the show, I had the honor of interviewing him on an episode of Jacobin's Stay at Home series. And Ben is also a contributing editor at Jacobin, as well as at Africa is a country. So thank you guys for joining us. And speaking of, of Jacobin, Ben, you've, you've written over there in the past that if the left is serious about wielding and transforming state power, it needs to go beyond a moralistic understanding of power. And, and Wangui, in our correspondence with you, which was absolutely brilliant, you were, you were trying to figure out what angle we were going to take on today's show. You described anti-corruption politics as a kind of vacuous politics taken up by so-called leaders at the cost of a substantive people-centered politics or issues. So, I mean, could you guys unpack that a little bit? So, I mean, I think to the layperson, anti-corruption politics seems so harmless and unobjectionable, and especially in countries where corruption is rife, which is most of the world, they also seem unnecessary. So why isn't it as, as straightforward as it seems? Go ahead, Ben, go ahead, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll start then. Um, firstly, I think the first thing to say about anti-corruption is who isn't against corruption? It's the rare politician or person indeed who is openly pro-corruption. So it's saying you're against corruption is like saying you're against mass murder. It's very, it's a banal thing. So you have to ask, what does it mean? And in order to know what it means, you have to ask, what is corruption? Now, uh, part of the problem is, is that the meaning of corruption in today's world has been reduced from its historic meaning to mostly a sort of legalistic definition which reduces corruption to a set of illegal acts committed by uh, public officials in pursuit of their own private interest instead of a sort of public good or national interest. Now, that's all very well and good, but it's kind of narrow. It doesn't really explain corruption or when we say systemic corruption, what does it mean? 
So at the end of it, what you really have is corruption is a problem of bad guys and we need to get rid of the bad guys. And the only way to get rid of the bad guys is through two ways. One is the courts and uh, the other is through introducing accountability, whatever that means, which is normally through the courts. So mm -hmm. we have all these all sort of other sort of similar notions that go along with cor anti-corruption, like transparency uh, and other things. But in the end, uh, we have to ask the question is, um, if everyone's against corruption, why is everywhere full of corruption? I mean, it's hardly going away. Even in countries with huge anti-corruption investigations, it seems to be systemic, meaning that it's business as usual. It doesn't depend on bad people being in power. And then you have another issue is, does corruption actually include uh, only illegal acts? Because there's plenty of uh, conflicts of interests and things which could be seen as uh, benefiting certain people in the wrong way, which are perfectly legal. Look at the United States, where massive donations to political parties have basically been legalized by the Supreme Court. I mean, these questions have to be asked. And in order to understand anti-corruption politics, we have to say it's all very well and good to say you're against corruption. But what does that actually mean? And how do we build something that actually ends systemic corruption if we're all against it? Because locking up the bad guys hardly seems to work. Um, for me, first, I need to say fire burn all the people who are stealing money from kids' schools. There's so many, it's, COVID money has gone in Kenya, like, hospitals don't have medicine, they're getting donations from pharmacies who are giving them almost expired medicine. So fire burn them, but that's not, that cannot be the only Thing used to rally or to mobilize people, you know? And Kenya, coming from a country where people know, okay, Kenya, they're runners, there's Maasai's and corruption. They're like, those are the three things that people uh, <laughs> like our brand name. Maasai's, of course, first, and, and maybe safaris. But corruption for us is like our brand name. But, you know, um, it's even... It's such a, uh, it becomes a vacuous politics, like I was trying to say, because people like Raila, who before they got into parliament uh, through uh, unelected means, but they're, they're with the government now, were saying Kenyans, ordinary Kenyans are tired of being donkeys. We don't want any more loans. We don't want any more corruption. In Swahili, you say, Punda Mechoka. So the, the donkey's tired. but. Soon as he got into power, like Ben was saying, um, he, like within the year, he went with Uru to China to try and get more loans. Uh, his party hasn't fully condemned the money that has been stolen, the COVID money that has been stolen. And so it's as much as, like Ben was saying, we're all against this. We're all against like not enough money for housing for four people poor people, but it doesn't at the end of the day create the necessary uh, the necessary like mobilization or like it's it doesn't fuel the kind of change we need. It's it's just like a rhetorical statement. Uh, uh, it's just and the fun so it doesn't really allow for us to think about what needs to change in the country systematically. It's just this tokenistic declaration. And, 
but also related, there's so many industries that uh, thrive because of us having this name of being corrupt. So Transparency International will, will every honestly, every country, I think their index is 180 countries. Every country over 100 is probably African, or I mean, we only have 54, but let's say from 132 onwards is all African. That's an industry. Uh, there are all of these industries that thrive from uh, being corrupt, and so we also need to firebrand these people because they're not—they're not working to change systems. They're—they're they're thriving because we are corrupt, and—and and that's also an issue. Um, and but the issue is real. Kenya, in two years, we've lost thirty million shilling, thirty billion Kenya shillings, which is like thirty million dollars. Uh, so many people have died from hospital strikes because they are not paid enough. Uh, you know, there's, the stakes are high. They really are high. And I think actually Sean Sweatshirt says that. But the, the, the stakes are really high. And so in as much as we are like, you can't come to power by just saying corruption is bad. And equally, we can see that in Angola where Joao Lorenzo is, uh, manifesto seems to be imprisoning Dos Santos kids, which is fine, but it's not. At the end of the day, that's not. Uh, it's not a politics that will enable the radical systemic changes that we we need. I mean, one thing I'm I'm wondering is 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 this is about whether or not. So there's a there's a question about whether or not anti-corruption can sustain or envision the radical systemic changes that we need. But it does seem in some cases, not all the time, to be sufficient to sort of fuel a movement or at least to get people mobilized. So I'm thinking about, you know, AMLO in Mexico, when he came to power, one of his big tickets was anti-corruption. And as I was saying in the introduction here in South Africa recently, the, the, the first mobilization that brought trade unions together and maybe it wasn't as impressive as we would have liked. Not a lot of people turn out to, to the streets. But the first mobilization that brought everyone together was an anti-corruption protest um, responding to, as you were describing, happening in Kenya, as it's been happening here in South Africa, COVID corruption. And just sort of hoping to appeal to people at the sheer sort of horror and how morally reprehensible it is to, to steal at this time. So, I mean... I mean, is it the case that it's all the time that it can't really, you know, fuel, maybe it can't fuel politics, but it gets, it gets people mobilized. And is, is there a way that it could be vindicated somehow through that? And can I, can I throw in like a, can I throw in just like a little addendum to that? And I think Ben can probably speak to this. And that, well, Mugui sort of alluded to like what Uhuru and Rato, Rato said, which is the, the Brazilian case is probably the one where it can also go terribly wrong as, as sparking a fuel because you had at the one end, and I know Wangui uh, also has experience in Brazil, where you had people protesting over bus prices, um, the corruption of the World Cup, and then at the same time, there was the right. And Luke Weber, you know, it can, it can also go somewhere else. So I wonder if you want to maybe say something about that as part of the answer. Um, I think part of the issue is, is that we're not anti-anti-corruption anti necessarily. We're just saying that anti-corruption by itself is an empty moralistic thing that who isn't for it. And the point is about that. There are cases where it can take on a more content-fueled 
sort of left-leaning agenda. I mean, Mexico is a good example. And what happens is they say two things uh, when we have anti-corruption take on this sort of character. We ask, what are the root causes of corruption? And it's not just bad people. That's the thing. It's beyond people. Good people are corrupted by the system, as people often say. Power corrupts. Why is that so? And it's pretty easy to explain, is that the incentives to be corrupt or whether for economic or structural reasons are just there and um, we need to look at that. And often it lies, its root causes are inequality, the centralization of power among elites, as well as a lack of state capacity and a dysfunctional uh, state apparatus and political system. Now, while we can say at one level prosecuting people is good, that won't really change the system. That will get rid of certain people from these things. We have to ask, we need institutional reform, we need to reduce inequality. In other words, any standard uh, program for real social change will include getting rid of corruption, but it'll be included as something which is about changing the power structure of society. I mean, clearly, like, there's something about the outsourcing of state capacity uh, under neoliberalism, particularly in Africa, which has produced corruption, because one of the things that happens when you're in power is that you find out that you have a bunch of trade-offs to make. And one of the things is you find out that we're in power, but we can't really do anything to be promising. So if I can't do anything to be promising, why not just make a bit of money for me and my family? And then we also have uh, broken economies, like in South Africa, where you have close to 50% unemployment now, probably. And people's access to state resources through public office supports hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in South Africa. And that's something we also have to say, this is systemic. And then we also have the fact that anyone can be anti-corruption which means it's very easy to say that all social change or leftist projects are corrupt and we need good moral Christian leadership or whatever. And we see the sort of demagoguery which you can see in uh, elements of what happened in Brazil along with the problems which you have with the legal system is which the real problem is not prosecuting people is that with it doesn't build power. You're essentially handing over a political victory to a bunch of unelected officials which you can't hold to account. It may go your way, but again, it's not really, it's down to lawyers, it's down to people who are not democratically accountable, which means that I'm not against it, but it's not going to replace this hard task of power. And then to go back to the African examples, what we've had now is that we have these uh, broken states and corrupt, broken uh, liberation movements which are authoritarian have been there forever, and they've run out of things to offer because they're not exactly going to offer real social programs, real social change, or socialism in Angola, what they're going to offer is anti-corruption, because it's something at least. And in this case, the party, the ruling party, the MPLA, is differentiating itself now from its previous regime by locking up the previous regime in jail. It's proved a good way to regenerate yourself when you've lost credibility, as you've seen in South Africa, where we have an anti-corruption president, supposedly Cyril Ramaphosa, in the same party that supposedly was captured by an Indian business family and is currently, you know, selling dodgy scooters in the COVID crisis to each other. <laughs> you know, I on the on the flip side, maybe if it's something that we can all agree on, maybe the hopeful parts of myself thinks maybe if this is a platform we can all agree on, maybe it's a spark for something bigger. I'm not sure, but I'm really trying to be hopeful. But at the end of the day, like Ben says, uh, anti-corruption politics is not about you or me. It's about uh, one politician on one side condemning the other one on the other side. We have nothing. We For us, we, we don't feature in, in any of those like negotiations. And we've seen here, uh, in one 
in like one month, Uhuru will arrest four people dramatically, like take the governor and his kids to jail, uh, or he'll arrest them away. But it's, it, and then he'll say, oh, they have corruption proceedings, but that's because they're not being, they're not agreeing with the, towing the line of the government. So it's, it has nothing really to, to do with us, but really the, the hopeful move is like, could it be something we all agree on? We all agree that the national government should not have a tender for air. Like in 2017, there was a tender for air. People were supplying air and they paid for it. <laughs> the, in the budget line, they were supplying air and someone got millions of shillings or during, right now it's October rains. And a few years ago, uh, there was, co there was, I don't know if in the US you have El Nino, but like heavy rain preparation fund. And part of that fund said they would buy a bar of soap for a, one bar of soap for $375. So, which is uh, like half, which is like a sixth of the national, like the everyday wage. So the monthly wage of someone here. So I, in some ways, I'm just trying to be hopeful and saying we all agree that that is, is not, shouldn't go on. And there's a little part of me that's saying if that's something we all agree on, that's good. But at the end of the day, I agree with Ben. It's not about you and me. You and I don't feature it. It's elite bargaining and, and negotiations and cronism uh, that fuels this anti-corruption politics, unfortunately. Um, just, just by before I ask, ask my question, ask my question. I, I was actually wondering who was going to get the De La Soul reference first. I'm, I'm a little disappointed by Ben. Um, so Wangui, you get the point for getting the the stakes is high. Um, <laughs> one of the best albums ever. In any case, I want to take it a step back by asking when, when exactly did the corruption become like a matter of of moral panic as opposed to business as usual i.e. that it's sort of built into the running of capitalism. Like when did this, where did this whole obsession with corruption like began? I mean, I know you can, if you can give us like a general picture, but specifically also like kind of when, when did this become like a mantra in elections in Africa, I suppose, or with even authoritarian governments claiming to be like, I'm here to solve corruption. I think that is a pretty uh, clear timeline. I mean, of course, corruption as a political issue has been around since the ancients, but traditionally corruption, I think it should be noted, meant a sort of decaying process in ancient Greek philosophy. It's a process of social and political degeneration rather than specific acts. And we can see the effects in that the degeneration of political morality, uh, if you would like, is to the point where people are stealing food from children who are hungry during COVID. But in terms of what you're specifically asking, it's a post-Cold War thing. The corruption industry, if we can call it that, organizations like Transparency International, the UN anti-corruption initiatives, into sort of determining that corruption was the major problem, is all after the end of the Soviet Union. Previously, people's understandings of corruption were quite different. I mean, uh, modernization theorists like Samuel Huntington used to argue that corruption was conducive to political and economic development. Here now, it became seen as the principal obstacle to African development or development of Latin America. Uh, part of the reason was to explain if the political power of uh, state and policy being handed over in terms of structural adjustment policies to Western experts and the World Bank and the IMF, uh, what explains African uh, debt crisis, continued poverty and underdevelopment and a sort of terrible cycle of uh, 
these sort of crises. And it's easy, blame them, they're corrupt. It's a culture of corruption in Africa. It's a sort of easy explanation. It's the white man's burden to uh, give them uh, proper transparency and accountability policies. So I think if you want to determine when corruption becomes a specific main issue, I think it's a post-Cold uh, War thing. And I think uh, part of the reason is, is that um, there simply hasn't been uh, many promises from many of the governments in terms of ambitious development policies. Now it's just like good governance or reducing corruption rather than some sort of utopian society envisioned uh, as perhaps the first wave decolonization uh, movements and leaders thought in the 50s and 60s. And uh, I also want to add now, um, one of the things when I wrote that I did about uh, we, the left shouldn't moralize power is what I mean is that there's a trade-off. I mean, uh, being corrupt in power is not a betrayal. It's got something else to it. If it was a betrayal, it would be much easier to solve. And now what we're having during COVID, while corruption is definitely affecting and undermining and betraying countries' responses to COVID, anti-corruption on itself is not going to put food on the table during the worst economic and public health crisis in God knows how, how long. At the end of the day in South Africa, we're having this issue where it seems as if the government is still pushing austerity, even if it's extended some social welfare measures and hasn't done a real stimulus package. But instead of that, it's got Hollywood style arrest, which is to use our great politically Julius Malema's term, even though the guys bloody well deserve it. And I really hope they go down. Uh, but that in itself is not going to deal with the massive social crisis brewing in this country because people can't eat. Um, and on this end, you know, uh, I think the formation of Kenya was a corrupt process. Like even the establishment of this colony based solely on extraction shows like systematic corruption. But uh, in terms of now and in the so-called independence period, John Gidongo says that this government is the worst that Kenya has ever seen. Really, it's someone was telling me today, it's like a government by procurement. So I don't know if maybe in Kenya, it's uh, there's a, always a procurement department that is has lots of power. And here, it's been, even the infrastructure we get is so highly embedded with so many corrupt procedures. And so I would say, I mean, I don't have as clear a timeline as Ben, but the, this country was built through corrupt and equal processes, so we point to that. But if we're talking about now or the post-independence period, I would say, and as others have said, this government is is really the worst. And it doesn't, because there's no opposition anymore, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be abating. And so, and in some ways, the efforts to protest this kind of corruption have been successful judging by how heavily they're policed and how much brutality there is but that's not enough it doesn't it, it's not enough to to change the real material conditions of people and perhaps there's more outrage because there's such a big disparity between those who have and don't have like the it, the conditions of people are really really grave and the economy has shrunk uh, there are no jobs People estimate that close to 6 million people have lost jobs uh, because of COVID. And perhaps that's why there's increasing outrage. But it really has been with us all along, even if we all agree. I think that this government is just, is just the armpit of corruption. It's just the worst. And fire burn them. Yeah. <laughs> 
Fire, fire burn is the title of this episode. Fire burn then is the title of this episode. <laughs> um, the, the stakes literally are, are high and are on fire because we're burning them. <laughs> But I mean, to ask, a, to ask a question now, I mean, what is, what is the desired sweet spot between anti-corruption politics and a leftist or progressive agenda? And you've, you've already alluded to some of it. And, and I think as, as Marissa Merman is asking on YouTube, what alternatives do we see? What politics do we see emerging that offer something else? And um, I think to to off, like to add more onto that, you get the sense that that I mean, you've all already said that anti-corruption by itself can't be a sufficiently substantive politics. But one one feels that, especially in this day and age, given the the defeat of the left across most of the world, anti-corruption ends up being that thing that is able to bind all of these competing interests and fragmented movements together precisely because it's so outrageous. And one wonders if maybe that we should just accept that the terms of politics today in a moment of disorganization and defeat is to lean into that more affective politics and hope to sort of bring, build something out of that and, and, and transform it and give it content. So. That's just to, to add a little bit more to this question of, of what is the alternative? Where do we see another more meaningful politics emerging from? And can anti-corruption play a role in trying to, to get that off the ground? Um, of course it can. I mean, the issue here is not that uh, anti-corruption cannot be a mobilizing thing. It's that it has to go beyond just getting rid of the bad guys or locking them up. It has to uh, do two things. One, it has to offer an account of where corruption comes from, and that could be inequality. It could be the history of the nation-building process, uh, as you alluded to. Uh, it could be a number of things, but it, in the end, it's an, about inequality of power and the inability to hold those with power accountable and the distribution of resources in society. I mean, what could be a greater example of corruption than the extreme concentration of wealth and power in the hands mm -hmm. of the very few, which is an obvious sort of populist anti-corruption thing to go into. What you need to do there is that we have to talk about power, precisely that, we have to build power. And that's the thing, is um, in South Africa, people have been waiting on for on another Mandela, another Messiah to ascend and offer good leadership to redeem our sinful nation, which has gone astray since 1994. And it's and the same thing is the courts and the constitution or solutions, but none of these build power. At the end of the day, we still have more or less a one-party state uh, in South Africa, even if it is a democracy. And until the ANC, the ruling party, feels fear, real fear that it'll be held to account in terms of power, in terms of either trade union mobilizations with the ability to shut down the economy, in terms of other parties and institutions forming that can offer different alternatives, it's not got no incentive to change and at the end of the day uh while we don't have any exact roadmap we can say that this ultimately is a question about the distribution of resources and power and in order to change that it's the same answer that we can give to any of our problems we have to build the power to be able to change this and obviously there's a bunch of technical and specific responses that you could ask the issues of corruption in terms of procurement policy tender policy and all of that But uh, for me, focusing on the technical aspects admits this is just a political problem. And uh, we have to face the fact that in many cases we have been defeated or reasonably weak. But this is something we have to face too if we go to talk about having a future. And uh, 
and I, I just want to end with this, is that um, part of what cor systemic corruption in Africa and elsewhere has produced is a cycle of diminishing expectations, where people no longer expect anything from the state but corruption. And that's why people shrug their shoulders. Of course, they're against it, but do nothing. They don't think change can happen. And this is what why corruption has this terrible decaying effect on, the, on politics, is it produces continued lack of expectations from their leaders. In fact, it helps the corrupt to have more corruption scandals at times in the news, but it just makes people more cynical. Um, yeah, I totally agree with you, Ben. And you know, in, uh, this is hopefully not a long-winded uh, thinking through, but in thinking about Nigeria and seeing how uh, it seems from my faraway perspective, they were able to have a cross-class mobilization that removed the that special unit. I mm -hmm. was that's really amazing because here we're always struggling with apathetic middle class people. I'm also middle class, so I think I can I can talk crap about middle class people, but who there's nothing you can do to make them link forces with uh, like poor struggling workers. Yani, you can try anything, and so it's so hard to forge. Uh, cross-class mobilization, but on any issue, talk about police violence, they don't care, talk about lack of food, they just want charity. But maybe, and this is my very hopeful self, maybe uh, anti-corruption appears to be uh, uh, like an issue that mobilizes people across these dynamics. And hopefully as an alternative, as a possibility, it can be the place for you for coming together that then allows us to think about issues beyond corruption. This is my very hopeful self. I'm just trying to be hopeful, but as a as a way to come together to think about uh, what are the dynamics that enable this kind of corruption in the in the country. So maybe this is very hopeful. But you know, uh, we just have to stay hopeful. But maybe it's. It's the topic that will make middle class people like think about other people in the country and, and enable the cross class mobilization that we need. And I then we'll be able to go beyond this vacuous politics. On that hopeful note, um, and with the refrain that fire burned them, fire, <laughs> fire burned them, fire upon them. Fire. <laughs> this is the month. Was it upon Babylon? I think it was Bali's birth month, or actually it was Fellas. It was Fellas' birth month. So the fire burned them. It, it works today. The hope is good. Um, I want to thank Ben and I want to thank Wangui for coming on. This was this was great. Um, this is not the end of the conversation. Actually, we plan to bring on Saeed and and some other people to come and talk about SARS because you raise an important point there at the end. Given Ben's point about power and. and distribution of resources by referring to like this cross-class um, uh, campaign in Nigeria, which, which I don't know how to interpret that, but it also drew tweets from Kanye and Ice Cube. But we will move on. we're going to move on from that um, because if somebody, says, somebody said to me on Twitter, I'm not allowing free thinking among black people or people of African descent. So um, Anyway, so but anyway, you know, if, it, kind of, it was good that Kanye tweeted that he gave it. He gave it some more stuff. But I think you're right. Uh, like, where can this go? Where can something? Because in Nigeria, there are movements like Revolution Now, 
um, you know, there, there was Occupy Nigeria in 2011. So what is this? Is, you know, is this is this um, something different? In any case, thanks to both of you. Thank you. We move on to our, our final guest. Um, uh, we're going to talk about elections in uh, Tanzania, and we hope that the lines are going to hold up. We had some problems earlier with one of our guests trying to get in, but I think it's working now. Um, the elections are scheduled for the 28th of October, uh, next Wednesday. Um, the United Republic of Tanzania, because that's the full name. People always make the mistake of only saying Tanzania, and they're speaking mostly about the mainland, but it's both uh, uh, Tanzania and Zanzibar. Um, has been governed by the same party since independence, Chamata Mapenduzi, or CCM, or in English, the, part, the Revolutionary State Party. And this has been since December of 1961. And this includes the period as Tanzania as a one-party state um, for some of that time, um, at least for more than two decades. Um, uh, Tanzania only had uh, its first multi-party elections in 1994. And so that party is continuing to govern um, the leader of that party, John uh, Magufuli, he's the favorite uh, to win the election, and we'll get into a bit of that now. And so our guests are um, Sabato Niamsenda and uh, Elisa Greco. Sabato is an assistant lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam and is the founding member of Chukwa La Wajama Tanzania, Tanzania Socialist Forum. Uh, Elisa is an associate professor of polit political economy and development at ESPOL, which is the European School of um, Politics um, in Lille. And she works in the tradition of Marxist political economy with a focus on the political economy of agrarian change in the global south. Her research um, analyzes land and labor questions in African farming, class dynamics, and resistance to land grabs. Um, and the financialization of farming, and she mostly works um, uh, in Tanzania. So just before both of you came on, we've been discussing the, the pitfalls of anti-corruption politics. And as you both know, the incumbent in Tanzania, uh, Magufuli, he attracted popularity at the beginning of his term um, for being tough on state corruption. Um, is, that, is that all that he um, has accomplished? And how would you summarize his legacy? Either one of you can go. I, I, I think I should uh, I should start because my internet is very unstable. I, I have actually been moving <laughs> in different rooms in my, my, my home to see if I can connect. Well, you know what the question uh, would be right now? The question would be, what would Mago Foley do about the internet? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So uh, I would uh, sum up his legacy. Uh, uh, first, I think he had a very progressive stance uh, when it comes to corruption, especially in the beginning uh, of his term. That is uh, 2015, 2016, and 2017. Uh, and he had a broader definition of corruption, not only embezzlement uh, and stealing of public fund, which was rampant in Tanzania, but also he went over, we went ahead and redefined uh, corruption to include uh, the, like the pillage and plunder of resources of the country. And therefore he took on multinational uh, corporations. He took on uh, companies that were enjoying tax bonanzas uh, to try and get a larger share uh, of, of, of what the state deserves. So when it comes to corruption, his, uh, his, his stance was very progressive, but 
uh, with time, uh, when he started cracking down, especially on the opposition and civil society, the same laws that were used to crack down on uh, corrupt officials were also applied on activists. Uh, and therefore, that uh, became like uh, uh, the, the, the negative side of his anti-corruption zeal. Elisa? Yes, and, and that's the, um, the analytical point I wanted to make to connect with what uh, Wangui and Ben said, that you can have anti-corruption from the left and anti-corruption from the right. And I think the Nigeria example is a very good one on how leftist social movements can actually mobilize uh, for an anti-corruption politics from the left. And uh, why is that the case? Uh, because corruption is not an analytical category. It's an empirical fact that can be interpreted and, and should be interpreted. And one interpretation of it is that um, it's, uh, it's an expression of rent, it's an, uh, it's, uh, it's an appropriation of value created elsewhere in the economy, and um, uh, it means that to address um, uh, the reasons that lead corruption to expand, you need to uh, address uh, class relations. You need to put in question class relations uh, that lead uh, domestically and internationally to corruption as being an extended system of accumulation. Why? Because basically corruption is a system to redistribute um, value produced elsewhere, but it has to do with the structure of accumulation uh, of a country uh, and the way it's integrated in the global market. So I think what, what Magu Fuli did at the beginning of his term, as, as Sabato said, um, uh, was interesting and was mobilizing the majority of the people because it was uh, uh, quite explicitly uh, a class project that was trying to change the balance of uh, interclass relations. So that didn't last very long, unfortunately, but um, the, the, the original, the, the first 12 months at least, of Magufuli's um, interventions linked an attack on corruption with an attack on rent. And that was basically an attack on the major sources of income for middle classes, uh, mainly urban middle classes, that clearly had a, a, an immediate resonance um, uh, for the majority of the people. So that was a huge mobilizing moment. Um, and uh, as Sabato mentioned, uh, how comes that in the turn of a, a year and a year and a half, uh, state violence and political repression became the norm. Well, one one interpretation you could give of that, and I, and it's something I really um, attempt to um, to suggest here, is that um, there was a class ba backlash against uh, Magufuli's um, uh, attempt to shift the balance of forces in, in, in class relations. So part of the party, part of the majority party felt uh, that their material interests was under attack. Uh, the middle classes felt threatened in, in a major source of income. Just imagine that Magufuli uh, put restrictions on rent in the real estate sector in Dar es Salaam a few months in, uh, together with the anti-corruption politics he put in uh, place uh, huge measures of huge uh, a signal of um, uh, rupture with uh, 20 25 years of um, um, pretty consistent neoliberal 
policies. Uh, so a signal of rupture on this uh, economy based on rents uh, and also a rediscussion of the extractivism um, pattern of the economy. A, a discussion of the structures of accumulation. So his anti-corruption politics was not happening in a void. It was uh, conceived uh, in a wider uh, vision from the left, uh, which aimed uh, at structural transformation. That was abandoned or at least partially compromised uh, one year, one year and a half in uh, with huge disappointment from the left, not only Tanzanian, but in general, but also with huge consequences in terms of um, um, internal uh, class alliances, because of course, um, at the international level, Tanzania remains uh, a dependent country uh, in the old sense of uh, dependency theory. And this uh, means that uh, uh, rents in general Corruption as one of the many expressions of rents um, uh, is, is uh, dominant because of the compradorial character of, of the national bourgeoisie. So simplifying, um, we need to analyze uh, anti-corruption politics in terms of class and the balance of forces that they are predicated upon. I think a very good attempt has been made by a Mozambican economist, Carlos Nuno Castelbranco, um, when he analyzes the economic porosity of Mozambique um, and the fact that uh, capital flight, tax havens and financialization are much, um, in terms of volume, much higher source uh, of economic losses to many African countries than corruption is, but corruption is a political conditionality of the Washington consensus. So um, a lot of anti-corruption agendas are uh, preempted by the fact that they come from, um, uh, from the right or, or from the uh, social democratic forces or the, the liberal uh, agendas or neoliberal agendas according to the different uh, contexts. That there's a lot that changes with context, but that's why I think uh, Sean's and, and Williams mentioned to Nigeria is interesting because in Nigeria, the left has mobilized an anti-corruption agenda on the left. And I think it shows us that it is not that corruption is not relevant. It is extremely relevant because it can mobilize, as Wangui said, take the middle classes out of the apathy. But Wangui, my impression is that uh, it is not only apathy, but it's a very strong sense of uh, self-interest uh, that uh, that means that middle classes are interested in anti-corruption anti agendas, but they're absolutely opposing agendas that touch upon the rent economy. Right. So, so it's easy to, to use the anti-corruption agenda to mobilize widely as long as it doesn't touch the more substantial issues in the structure of accumulation. Yeah, I mean that's that's fascinating. This is the this is the first time I've I've heard it put as how, what could explain sort of Magufuli departing from his initial anti-corruption agenda, which was from the left and which was about trying to put constraints on the expansion of the private sector and about redistributing income could be understood as, as being a, a sort of backlash from, from the middle class and from capital. But, but what I'm interested in is how do we understand exactly how that shift happened? I mean, 
Sabato, you were also talking about it when you said it, it moved from, from embracing this autocratic character and being used to target opposition and journalists. So, so how do we, how exactly do we understand that shift? Um, is it only about trying to, to sort of um, appease capital and no longer embark on this redistributive anti-corruption agenda? Or, or what else explains that, that turn towards, towards a more autocratic uh, style of leadership and in crackdown? Uh, Sabato, if you'd like to, to go ahead. Uh, so, so, sorry, William. Um, my internet was a bit poor. I couldn't get your question, but if you could repeat, I'd be glad to contribute. Sure, no worries. I mean, I was I was just asking. Um, Eliza's given us some some indication of how this this turn um, from Magufuli's anti-corruption project being a, a class project in the beginning and becoming then one about suppressing political dissent, being explained through also how there was hostility from, from capital and the middle classes that this anti-corruption class project had been embarked on. Um, but I mean, how do, we, how, do we, how do we understand exactly why it ended up being the case that the direction that, or the trajectory that the project took was one of autocracy and, and targeting journalists and opposition? I think we... Ah, I think we lost something, which which happens. Right, so, um, so Eliza, if you don't mind, I don't mind. I'm just sorry because Sabado is um, such an incisive speaker. So we we when we discuss this, of course, um, the analysis. Oh, Karibu. Uh, Did you? Again, I, I, I lost the question, uh, William's second, uh, when he was asking so the some words about uh, corruption and middle classes and etc. So I will try to, I'll try to do it as a follow-up to what Elisa was talking yes. in the beginning, so that we don't, uh, as, as an addition to what she was talking about. Uh, is that okay? Yeah. Please. So, so, so I, 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 and Elisa has explained it very well. Uh, uh, one, the need to look uh, at corruption, not as, and, and, and even in the first show, Wango and Ben, uh, not to look at corruption, not as a moral category, but uh, as a political economic reality. Uh, and on that stance, I, I think in the beginning of his time, Magufuli was, was very progressive on the same. But then uh, if you look at it from uh, class lenses, I would see how he took on, especially on, on, on imperialism, uh, especially what multinational corporations were doing. Because if you look at uh, uh, like the tax bonanzas that were given to multinational corporations, the, 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 the stealing of resources, because he formed even a, a commission of inquiry into, into the mining sector, and they, it formed a gross a plan of resources from the country. They were actually... Uh, uh, exporting rocks uh, with minerals out of the country, and therefore he tried to stop that. Uh, so if you look at, at it from class angles, uh, especially in terms of uh, the relation between the global south and the global north, uh, the fact that these multinationals were coming to plunder resources, uh, uh, take out uh, capital and all the profits back to their mother countries, 
uh, on that level, he tried to redefine uh, the relations, the relations between the people of the global south uh, and the people of the global north. But again, there was a limit because his project was not about to take over the means of production and to try, and especially when it comes to the mining, to the mining sector. Uh, it was not about taking over the means of production and put them in the hands of the government, for instance, but it was to renegotiate the formula of exploitation. And that is why uh, after a series of negotiations between the government and, and Barrick corporations, for instance, uh, they made a bit of concessions and the government considered uh, some of its radical demands that it was uh, making. Uh, internally, the nature of the classes that we have, especially the rich classes, are comprador classes. Uh, if you look at the rich persons in Tanzania, they don't make their money out of productive activities. So if you listen to his earlier speeches, he was trying to appeal to recruit a local indigenous class, what he called the Wazawa, eh? black people, black Tanzanians, taking uh, an entrepreneurial role uh, in, in industrialization. But then uh, he tried to appeal, he used both the carrot and the stick, uh, the stick being one, trying to crack down uh, on, on imports of, uh, for instance, oil, sugar, a crackdown on middlemen uh, in the cashewnut industry. And all of these uh, projects did not uh, yield positive uh, demands. Uh, on the other hand, he tried to incentivize uh, and, and to even try to appeal to, 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 to the local comprador class to transform itself from being a comprador class into a full-fledged bourgeoisie, and that did not happen. So currently, for instance, he's uh, talking about uh, industrialization. Uh, he doesn't have an agency, a local agency, to take uh, to, to carry on that uh, uh, classic project. So I, I, I don't think he is progressive. He, he is progressive, especially on its, his economic policy. Let me be very clear. His economic policy, uh, especially with regard to imperialism, he's not, that, he's not on the left, but he has incorporated some elements from the left some radicalism of the masses against uh, uh, the plunder of, uh, of, of resources. And that is progressive, but there are so many aggressive elements, especially when it comes to, 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 to politics, uh, to his uh, foreign policy, to his stance on Pan-Africanism uh, and gender and sexuality aspects. So these are things that we should, uh, we should discuss, which also have to do with class politics. Uh, and, 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 and then I also wanted to say, and I think I had Elisa, unfortunately my connection was, was, was very down. Uh, when it comes to the relationship between the Magufuli government, for instance, and the lower classes, uh, they see him as a he. You made an interesting point there, Lisa, which maybe you can expand on because, of course, we also yes, I'm struggling with connection. Yes, the idea is uh, Magufuli had some power of mobilization, uh, but he also had um, a, a lost uh, support uh, within his party and within the the middle classes. So it was a sign of weakness, of political weakness, the fact that he started using more and more political repression and state violence. To, to an extent that was um, 
uh, unknown on continental Tanzania, and at least uh, since the 70s, but very well known, I, I would say, in the Zanzibar archipelago. So he extended the repressive um, state apparatus and the, you know, clamp down and, and, uh, on, on the media, on the third sector, on activism in general, um, as a sign of political weakness, a, a defeat in his mobilization strategy of the beginning, um, caused, uh, among other things, by international backlash against him, but also a, a failure of um, internal support within CCM, within the majority party, and more broadly uh, within the middle classes that refused to commit um, uh, class suicide uh, with Amilcar Cabral. And Wangui, I, I go back to Kenya and the apathy of middle class as well, the interests that Magufuli attacked were, were, were class interests uh, and he started uh, using political repression as a sign of weakness. Then he lost control of the process. This is partly an explanation for the very high levels of political violence and repression that Tanzania has witnessed in the last, um, I would say, the last four years. Um, so I see Christina Mfanga in the questions saying, how can one balance um, anti-corruption mobilization with a water class approach and the crackdown of the middle class activists whose activism is characterized by the class backlash against the same? I think that's, that would be my answer. It's, uh, this is a form of authoritarian populism that we've seen uh, expanding in Brazil, in India, in Italy, in the US uh, um, after the global financial crisis the, the, the stalling of process of accumulation at the global level and the search for uh, a reformed sort of capitalism uh, against the neoliberal uh, orthodoxy, which carries with it uh, a, very, um, a very contradictory form of politics. Authoritarian populism moves very quickly from the left to the right. I think Magufuli is a, good, a very good example of this. Uh, but the liberal critiques of Magufuli are blind to, to, the, to the class project that he failed to deliver. Um, still, no, no one uh, on the left would ever support uh, political repression and state violence. And this is a very urgent, very big uh, political agenda at the moment, which at the same time in the electoral campaign is being um, monopolized by uh, liberal arguments. So the reestablishment of the rule of law, uh, democracy, transparency are always attached to a return to neoliberal policies, especially in the extractivist and the infrastructural sector. Which is why I wanted to ask you quickly about the opposition. So we know that the, in, in the electoral infrastructure favors Magafuli, but what, what, do you, what are your, I mean, most of the stuff that I've read suggests that he's gonna win easily because the system works to his favor. Um, but at the same time, what can we say about the opposition? You kind of alluded to the fact that they provide like a liberal critique um, and that there are people in there like Zito Kapwe. Can you say something about like, what do they, what, what, is, what does that all mean? This is uh, the guy who just returned from, from sure. Belgium. Um, at least, yeah. 
at least since 2010, elections have become increasingly, increasingly competitive in Tanzania and opposition parties have been very effective in uh, shifting the terms of the debate. The CCM, the, the majority party, has often um, passed pieces of legislation and reforms uh, before general elections um, to appropriate and preempt the agenda of, uh, of the of the main opposition parties, which in general have been, um, in, in analytical terms, uh, very reactive in their agendas. So um, their agendas have been reacting to the issues in the in the majority party. So anti-corruption uh, agendas uh, been uh, having a very very strong role, but also uh, the critique of. Um, uh, resorts extraction during uh, Kikwete was central to um, to Chadema to an, and CCR Mageuzi. So, the, of course, these are structurally small parties, underfunded compared to CCM, but they have played a huge role, I think, in in shifting the debate. They also have had quite a lot of success uh, in the local. Uh, government elections uh, and this is something that uh, was very visible in the last uh, local government election in December 2019 um, where uh, opposition parties refused to participate because of the of the climate of intimidation and uh, and pre preemptive measures against them so um, the political violence against um, uh, opposition party leaders has been blatant and very open, very visible. Um, still, I think there's a um, uh, there's a lot to say about the the Chadema current uh, agenda. It's a very liberal agenda, so um, I, I I wouldn't see any leftist element in that. So there's the ACT Wazalando is a, a recent split. A leftist split from uh, from Chadema, which is putting forward um, a very different program. Uh, but still, this is a, a very. But they've said, they've said for, the election, for the election. I think Kabwe uh, suggested that his supporters should should vote for for the Chadema candidate. That yes. Was, that, yes. Said, there's like forty of them, so we should all go behind one person. And and as happens in these kind of elections. It's usually um, behind the sort of like liberal candidate. Yes, well, because this time they didn't manage to form a coalition officially. So in, in 2015, there was Ukawa, a coalition that was formed. This time they didn't do that. So there's this sort of last minute um, strategic voting suggestions coming that are, yeah, that are more um, politicking and elector electoral uh, strategies. I'll let Sabato perhaps comment on this now that he's back. Yes, yeah, Sabato, and now that you're back, just quickly, the question is really like, what about the opposition? Like, and particularly, like, should we be excited by them? I mean, do they even have a real chance here, or is the system just rigged against them? And is it maybe perhaps also part of their own fault? Okay. Um, I, I wouldn't, okay, yes. Uh, okay, so I wouldn't blame the opposition. Uh, necessarily because uh, they have in in most cases they have been uh, victims of the crackdown by the state uh, so i in most cases sympathize with them uh, because when violence is done to any human being 
of course, as Chegevara taught us, we should all tremble. So it's something that we should oppose, especially the state's use of unnecessary terror and coercion against opposition and the activist figures, because it's threatening. Uh, but again, that does not make them uh, progressive. So we can, we should all join hands to try and uh, limit uh, the state's use of power. And as I have always argued, the use of power against the opposition and members of activists in the civil society is not new. It has been extreme under Magufuli, but it's not exception. Not in Africa, not in Tanzania, during all the time, spanning back to the Nyerere era and to the present. And why is that? It's because we inherited a colonial state. This state was about quashing any opposition against it, whether it's labor, whether it's opposition parties, and etc. So there's a whole legacy of authoritarianism, which is not, as the Western media is trying to portray, which is not individual in terms of Magufuli, because even when you change the leader, there is nothing that changes in terms of, if, if you don't dismantle the colonial state. Uh, but, and then secondly, uh, Magufuli accused, and I think rightly so, uh, the opposition as being stooges of imperialism. And if you look at the opposition, let's say the role of, uh, of Kabwe, because in most cases, uh, the West, he, he is very good at playing the West. In the morning, he can go and have breakfast uh, with Jeremy Corbyn. And in the evening, he goes to the World Bank and asks them to put sanctions against Tanzania. So he plays a very controversial role internally, domestically, but also externally, you know? So, but, but you know, he has been able to play the West, the West, so that Hillary Clinton invites him uh, to New York. At the same time, uh, ja ja the Jacobin, for instance, website writes all articles that he's uh, on the left, while he precisely he's not. He's against the state, uh, and, and his progressive stance is that of, of, of fighting authoritarianism. And that authoritarianism, I am saying it's extreme under Magufuli, but not exception. So let's go to the opposition. Does it offer any hope? My answer is no, it doesn't. Uh, partly because look at Tindulisu. He has been a victim of uh, an attempted assassination, which we all condemned. Uh, he went, of course, abroad for treatment. But after that, he was impressed by extremely right-wing uh, organizations from NGOs to, 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 to imperialist governments, whether it's the US State Department and I believe CIA and all the extreme right-wing organizations and some of them even racist, okay? Look at the role of uh, Robert Amsterdam on Tanzania. This is an individual writing letters, almost imperialist uh, threats on the leaders of a southern nation. If you look at it, there are elements of racism inside it. He has been, Stundulis has been endorsed by the UDI. The UDI is a right-wing organization. It was started, actually, it's a, a creation of Thatcher and Reagan, you know, and all the conservative figures and parties are part of that, and it has endorsed Tunduliso. Uh, in his international cross said for instance, he has promised one of his critics against him insistent on that is that he has, uh, uh, he has destroyed the business environment, you know, the trust on investors. He has uh, uh, destroyed the 
good relations that existed between Kikwete era uh, when it comes to economic policy and liberalization. There is no hope in that, you know. So, yes, uh, we should uh, support the opposition and sympathize with them, especially when they, uh, they, 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 they face violence from the state. But when it comes to uh, policy, and that has been my argument, I was addressing, uh, I have uh, been invited to two uh, assemblies of the peasant, the largest peasant organization in Eastern Central Africa, that is in Viwata, uh, which is in Tanzania. And my argument has been the working people should have their independent organizations that are not affiliated to any political party, because unfortunately, there's no leftist political party in Tanzania to the, at the moment. And then secondly, they should have their own independent agenda. They should push it. Whoever comes to power should implement that agenda. If they don't do that, then they will be doomed. For our comrades in the West, some of them uh, with uh, uh, like they have very good intentions, but it seems they don't get the reality on the ground, you know, for most things. Uh, so in most cases, some are confused. On the one hand, there is a moral imperative to intervene, uh, which is very good, but beware, because when you intervene without specifying the context, you know, one is that the state does not, it uses extreme force, does not use sheer force, the regime popular with the working people, you know, uh, when it comes to small scale miners, most of them who were evicted to make way for large scale miners, he has delivered justice to them. He has uh, revoked foreign companies and therefore is very popular in some rural areas where people had been uh, uh, dispossessed of their land. And his major legacy when it comes to democratic gain has been the granting of the rights to the city to street vendors. That has been very progressive. And in our definition of democracy, we have never, we have only defined democracy uh, in terms of middle class uh, aspirations and definitions. We have never included the realities of the masses in our definition of democracy. So if you talk to street vendors, and in one of my articles, one of my articles I wrote, uh, on Tanzania elections, I quoted uh, a newspaper, a very right-wing newspaper that is not a fan of the current regime. But when it went to interview street vendors on Magufuli, they say, we were being chased away like dogs. But now we are free to operate anywhere in the city. Is the right to the city for democratic opening? So our definition of democracy should be brought uh, and I think the working people should be, uh, they, they should organize, have an independent agenda and, and push it. Uh, Magufuli has been very consistent when it comes to his relationship to the working people. He has never, when he was campaigning in 2015, he was telling the people, Mniamini, uh, trust me, you have to believe in me, trust me. When he came to power, he was saying, Pray for me, Mnyombe. He never said, take this power <laughs> and uh, put it in your hands. No. So he has been very consistent when it comes to putting power in his hands from all organs, whether it's from the judiciary, whether it's from the parliament, whether it's from the working people, whether it's from trade unions. So we shouldn't have very high hopes in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, of, 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 of justifying his role. 
but then we it's a complicated relationship between him and the working people and he's still very popular but again Tundolis also is gaining a lot of popularity uh when he came back to tanzania for instance uh in his campaigns i was amazed that when he went to the rural areas actually he had to talk about nationalizing the land when he was talking to the national media he was saying magufuri is the threat to international media because he's He's, he's pursuing nationalistic policies. But when he went back to the working people and find their reality, he had to talk about nationalization. Uh, so in some cases. So I find that it's possible for the working people to push these candidates to articulate their agenda. Is the election going to be free and fair? I think that's one of the questions that uh, our comrades, especially those who live out of Tanzania, would, uh, would ask. I, I, I don't have the answer. There are signs of hope and signs of threat uh both ways but uh let's hope for the best and i i i i i still see that probably the current uh, president magufuli will uh will still be elected uh whether by by both ways uh either by using state power but he's still also very popular even if they didn't have to use uh state power to 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 make to to get votes on his side he would still uh win but uh but again <clears throat> What about the opposition? What about members of the opposition who win constituencies? Are they going to be declared as winners? What about councillors and city governments? That remains to be seen. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, that was that was brilliant. I mean, that was yeah, that was absolutely brilliant. I mean, you've answered some of the questions we had, but one one question to ask is maybe a closing question. I mean, Sabato, you were saying that the left and working class people in Tanzania need their own movement. You've helped found the Jukwala Wanyama Tanzania, the Tanzania Socialist Forum. And what what I wanna what I wanna ask is, you know, Tanzania and its experience of, of African socialism under Nyerere, which once upon a time was hegemonic, you would expect to still have a lot of ideological resonance with the population today. So what I'm wondering is where is Nyerere's legacy? currently with ordinary Tanzanian people. Do they is there is the belief successfully implemented by neoliberalism that socialist ideas have been discredited? Or do you think that there is still some of that sort of bubbling under the surface? Is this still a yearning of, of a lot of Tanzanians to, to return, not necessarily maybe to the policies that Nyerere implemented per se, but at least the vision for society that we had. And how do we rejuvenate that vision in, in Tanzania today? It's, uh, it's, it's impossible to, to live in Tanzania and struggle in Tanzania without talking about Nyerere. I mean, he's still, he's still very popular with the masses. Uh, and his major legacy that he left to Tanzania in the world was, was, was socialism, uh, the Arusha Declaration. And actually, the Arusha Declaration went further because because in his earlier articles, that's when he talked about uh, African socialism uh, as a, a way of going back probably and try to retrieve some elements of the classless uh, African society. And it was where he was even saying it's possible for a billionaire. He, he, he simply defined socialism as uh, the attitude of the mind. But later after 67, especially with the pronouncement of the Arusha Declaration, it went further. I would say it was much more radical than his earlier African socialist uh, uh, writings, because it talks about, it had elements of class and class struggles 
within it. So uh, if you talk to the masses today, I mean, if we were celebrating his legacy last week, day, 14th uh, of October, and everywhere, if you watch every TV, his speeches are being played. Every politician, if he wants to win, if even if everyone knows that this one will undo Nyerere's legacy, he will have to cite and quote Nyerere that he's uh, following the footsteps of Nyerere. So even Tundulisu, he was very anti-Nyerereist, but now he even quotes Nyerere because it's impossible to get with the masses. So he's still very popular. I mean, I, it was just uh, last week uh, when I was uh, at a conference organized by, 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 by Mbiwata, the largest peasant uh, association in Tanzania. So I was asking the farmers, you know, because we were going pillar by pillar of the Arusha Declaration, you know, and we were asking each pillar, you know, trying to redefine it uh, and, and not redefine it, trying to discuss and, and ponder on it. And everybody was saying, so I was asking them, you know, is what's wrong with this? And everybody's saying there's nothing wrong. We want the Arusha Declaration. When Yerele died, that was on the heyday of neoliberalism, but he made a prediction. His last interview, a few months before his death, his last interview with Ikaweba Banting, he said he still believes that in the end, uh, Tanzania will go back to the basic principles and ideals of the Arusha Declaration. The working people of Tanzania, you know, and you talked about Yukwala uh, Jama Tanzania. Uh, when we started it, it was just an elitist forum of university graduates meeting to, to read, you know, Marx and other revolutionary writings. But later we expanded in terms of trying to see, is it possible to get the same knowledge from the working people? We started going to the working people. I, am, I want to tell you every sector of the working people that we have forged the links with is still is believe is is asking for the basic element pushing for the 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 basic elements of the arusha declaration that is socialism so i think michaela wrote uh michaela followed wrote uh, a review of uh there is uh, a book that i edited which is a collection of narratives by different working people, whether it's from whether you talk about miners, whether it's bus drivers, whether it's motorcycle taxi drivers, whether it's street vendors in urban areas. Uh, women uh, under uh, the loan and savings credit associations and all the working people from all sectors all of them all of them are talking about one thing neoliberalism as it exhibits itself in their sector has failed one and two they are pushing for some form of socialism I think we lost. Um, Elisa, do you want to quickly just... Uh... Yeah, just to follow up on Zapata, the, the huge legacy of Jama in Tanzania is the structure of grassroots um, popular democracy of village assemblies and the political education that people get in Tanzania because that structure exists. That's a huge legacy that makes um, 
uh, grassroots politics in Tanzania a very exciting, vibrant field compared to many other countries, and and that's um, and that's why this legacy lives on because there's a there's a structure of direct um, direct democracy which is at the ba basis. Uh, of the idea of popular democracy is perhaps by Nyerere. So Nyerere's anti-corruption politi politics were socialist anti-corruption politics. They were class politics to, to bring the discussion to a close. Um, there's also a legacy of um, populism that can become authoritarian. And this has to be remembered because um, grassroots democracy in Tanzania can easily be crushed by sweeping decisions by the executive. And this tradition pre-existed Magufuli. So to bring back the analysis, uh, this is not an analysis about individuals. This is not an analysis of um, the African dictator or the African corrupted leaders. We're looking at something much more structural here. And I, I also share Sabato's hopes that popular democracy and direct democracy will prevail because Tanzania has this huge potential left by the legacies of Ujamaa. Of course, I also share the apprehensions because of the increasing political violence and state repression. Um, and and I, I agree with Sabado that it's in the hands of the majority uh, how these tensions will uh, and can be resolved. That's a great, that's a great um, uh, note on which to end the programs. I want to thank, and I, I see Sabato, we've lost him again a little bit, um, uh, for being on the program, Elisa for being on the program, Elisa Greco, also Ben Fogel and Wangui uh, Kamari, Kamari, uh, and my co-host, uh, Will Soki, <laughs> I've also noticed, I think somebody, somebody thought, are they talking about corruption today? I'm gonna mess with their screens. Screens of freezing, lines, uh, any, anything that could have gone wrong, it went wrong today. Um, but we, we, we got this. I think this was a great discussion. We, we're going to um, post these uh, clips on YouTube. You can watch it later again on Patreon. Uh, if you sign up, uh, it, some of it will still be available on Twitter. Um, also on Facebook, you can see the program. Um, but this was a great program. We had a great discussion here. And I want to thank everybody for, for tuning in. Uh, just finally, there was a, a listener, Caleb Green, wrote in the comments on YouTube saying, are there any books that you all would recommend for a layperson getting a solid grasp on African geopolitics from the mid-20th century to now? And he wanted particularly books from a left-wing or Marxist perspective. So I'm going to make a promise to Caleb. I'm going to email Savato, Elisa, Ben, and Wangui, and Will. And once, I, once we've collected all the recommendations from them, we'll create a thread on Twitter on our, on our page and we'll just list all the reading materials. These could be books, articles, uh, even videos that he could watch um, that we could recommend for, for Caleb. So thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Be back next week. Um, uh, how, do you, how do you say Asanta Sana? Asanta Sana, well, that's our that, that's our first step to decolonizing language on the <laughs> and, uh, and to our friends to our hundred year friends we say uh, uh, I don't know will you want to end it by well what can we say for the elections in the local lingo do you want to offer anything in the local lingo for the elections <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I don't know what to say I don't have I think everyone ended it ended it perfectly so. All I have to say is, yeah, Santa Sana and, and Koheri, it's everyone, and see you next week. 
See you next week. And thank you also to our producer, Antoinette Engel, who kept everything together with all the crazy, all the crazy connections. Um, this was great. Um, we enjoy it. See everybody next time. Have a nice day. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.